One Sunday, a family was driving home from church, and a little 10-year-old girl, daughter in the back seat, said, Mommy, there's something the pastor said I don't understand. It's not a surprise. Mommy said, what is it? She said, the pastor said that God is bigger than us and that God can hold the whole world in his hands. Is that true? And the mommy said, yes, that's true. And the father who had written or read a book on theology said, and that is the theology of the transcendence of God, the bigness of God. The little girl went on, she said, but the pastor also says that God lives in us when we accept him as our savior. Is that true? And mommy said, yes, that is true. And the father again said, and that's the theology of the eminence of God. God is close to us. The little girl in a puzzled voice said, Sarah was her name. If God is bigger than us and lives in us, wouldn't he show through? And that is the Sermon on the Mount from the mouth of a 10-year-old girl. If God is bigger than us and lives in us, wouldn't he show through? For us, the term Sermon on the Mount is insider lingo for three chapters of Scripture that are profound, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And as it happened in real time, God, the creator of the universe, the God, the creator of all human beings, was speaking through the mouth of Jesus, God the Son, of what it means to follow him. Jesus had come to set up a kingdom, and he was teaching a primer on what is life in the kingdom. And that is the Sermon on the Mount. The series is entitled, Forget What You've Heard, which are the words of Jesus, Because the values of the kingdom are very different than what we would think is a kingdom. Let me review some of them from the past few weeks. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Blessed are congratulations if you own your weaknesses. Hating your brother is akin to murder. Unity is more important than ritual. Vengeance is unacceptable. Respond to your enemies with generosity. Return good for evil. Your full-time role as a follower of Jesus is twofold. Illumination in a dark world and preservation in a decaying world. What a unique kingdom. And that was just Matthew 5. We have two more chapters to go through. Matthew 6 talks more about the kingdom of God. That his kingdom is not a brick and mortar kingdom. Neither is it online. (laughs) It's not surrounded by a moat. It's not boundaried piece of land. The kingdom of God is the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in the hearts of men and women. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in the hearts of men and women. When we choose to let God reign in our lives, the kingdom of God is present. When we act in a way that gives God's glory, the kingdom of God is present. When I love my enemy, 
the kingdom of God is present. When I reconcile with my brother, when I plant a tree, when I pick up litter, when I worship, the kingdom of God has come. Because the kingdom of God starts in the unseen place of our hearts. The kingdom of God transforms the hearts of men and women, youth and children, bringing spiritual life and vitality. The kingdom of God starts in our hearts, but is seen in our actions. The kingdom of God is on display in our attitudes, our thoughts, our relationships, our marriage, our neighborhood circle, our workplace. The kingdom of God is unseen, yet visible. Yes, Sarah, God's kingdom shows through us. It's righteous, it's holy, it's awesome. And it is how we were made to live, living in God's kingdom. Jesus invites us to follow us in his kingdom. It may begin with a prayer of confession. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have done wrong. I know you died on the cross for me. I accept you as my savior. Forgive me of my sins. That may be your entrance to the kingdom, but we move on in living in the kingdom. And our passage today is Matthew chapter six, as Brad read, talks about this kingdom. The passage today has one point and three illustrations. The one point is in Matthew chapter six, verse one. Let me give you the point. Beware of practicing your relation, your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. The thought is, in all that we do, we need to do to the glory of God, not for other people. That is what God has asked us to do. And then he gives three illustrations, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. But it starts with a warning. Look at that first verse there. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Beware. It's, it's a great term of saying you don't know what you don't know. It's actually the term for pulling into a harbor in a boat. I see John here, my young our sailor that we sail together. Good to see you, John. But when you pull into a harbor, you have no idea what it's like. The rivers come down and bring silt. The ocean comes and brings sand. There's sandbars at the entrance of every harbor. You can't see them. They're just below the surface. He says, beware when you pull into a harbor. There's also at the entrance of a harbor, treacherous tides and currents. You know, if you're sitting on top of Corona del Mar and you're looking down at the Newport Harbor, the entrance there, it looks all blue and peaceful and calm, but it's treacherous right there. As you pull into a harbor, he says, beware. Also, when you're practicing your righteousness, beware. One day, Adam and, and myself Adam and his wife, my son and daughter-in-law, and Susanna and I were heading out in the harbor on, on a sailboat. And as we were heading out of right there at Corona del Mar, we saw this uh, helicopter going around saying something. We thought he was saying there's sharks in the water over at Corona del Mar, but nothing happened. Then as we looked to the right side, we saw that there was a mast of a small boat that was on the rocks in the wedge. And we saw, wow, something's going on here. So Adam, there's no police. There's no um, harbor patrol at the moment. The Coast Guard hadn't been alerted. So Adam, let's go rescue the guy. 
So Adam in a fast sailboat that we were, if you know a sailboat, is very slow. We go out of the harbor. We go around. Adam gets on the front of the boat. He has a rope. He starts throwing it to the older, older man who was there. He had his life jacket on. His sail was torn. He was on the rocks. He didn't look in good shape. And as Adam was handing the rope, the harbor patrol came around and said, move away, move away. So we, we lost our opportunity to save someone. But it just shows that the harbor is always treacherous. He says, beware, there's something you don't see. The, the, the hindrance or the temptation is for us to do things to be seen by other people. For us to practice our righteousness so that others see it. For us to come to church for the benefit of others. For us to give or pray or fast so that others would see. And God is saying, beware. That's not what the kingdom is about. Beware of what? Acting righteously for the applause of others. And it follows with three practices. Now it doesn't say don't practice righteousness. It says beware when you practice. Now when we think of practicing righteousness, the first thing that comes to mind is, wait a minute, I thought salvation was free. I thought when I came to to God that God said, hey, it's free and it is free. Our salvation was paid for by Christ on the cross. His work and resurrection paid for our salvation. It reminds me of Sonny, one of our international students. You remember he came and gave his testimony on the platform several years ago. He had gone to a Christmas conference from crew and he came back and the teaching just blew his mind. He called me up and said, Dan, have you ever seen this verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace have we been saved through faith, not of ourselves. He said, have you seen this? It is by grace, not of ourselves. I said, yes, Sonny, that's great. Salvation is free. But as we come into salvation, God asks us to connect with him, to open our lives with him in these practices. As our relationship begins, he gives us practices not to win his favor, not to manipulate him, but to allow him to come into our lives and for us to connect with him. Now, when we talk about spiritual disciplines, it almost sounds like being spanked by a big King James Bible. (laughs) So I like to use the term spiritual practices. And there's quite a few spiritual practices. It's letting God transform us from the inside. Spiritual practices are the actions and practices and habits that are designed by our maker to help us grow and to strengthen our, our souls. They're gifts from God. They're not harsh mandates, but, but sweet grace given to us. And spiritual practices are intentional ways we give space to God to work in our lives. Well, in February, we're doing a whole series on spiritual practices and disciplines. But let me talk about a few of them right now before we get into these three. One of the practices is reading God's word. Right? Reading God's word. As we read God's word, the scripture says it is alive. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. There's something about reading God's word that transforms our souls, that allows God in to do something within us. Reading God's word, that's something we practice. Memorizing God's word, that's another practice. And you may say, hey, wait a minute, I'm too old for memorizing God's word. Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? 
by keeping it according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. There's something about memorizing God's word that gives us strength when we face temptation. Now, I've realized something about memorizing. As the older I get, the harder it is to memorize. I remember, now that's not true for everybody. Drake Mariani from our church has a whole system of memorizing scripture. It's online. It's amazing with little uh, characters and um, different hooks to help you memorize. Or a guy like Ron Hafer in our church who, at 82, continues to memorize scripture and he's got whole books down. How does he do that? It's just his mind. But it's so important that we memorize God's scripture as a practice. And I would encourage you with young families that you help your children. No, you force your children to memorize scripture. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the word. Most of the scripture that I have memorized, I memorized it around the kitchen table. Yeah, we had verses pinned all over the place. Summertime, you had to learn a whole chapter. It was horrible, I felt. Those are the verses I remember. The ones I've tried to remember the last few years, they just don't stick. So force your kids to memorize scripture. Did I say that? Yeah, I I think I can say that. Another one is meditating on God's word. That's another practice. It's chewing on God's word. It's when you read a verse or a thought in the morning, like I will never leave you or forsake you. And you picture that God will never leave me anywhere I go. He, he won't leave me. And as you go about your day, I'm, I'm in the car. He will never leave me or forsake me. I'm in the store. He'll never leave me. I'm playing with the kids. He'll never leave me. Meditating on God's word is a practice that draws us into presence with the living God. There's other practices. Silence and solitude. That's hard in our day. It's the practice of listening to God without any distractions. That's a difficult one. It's not easy in our loud society. Silence and solitude is a freedom from noise so that I can hear the voice of God. Now that may be early in the morning for you. It may be on a Saturday for you. It may be on a Sunday afternoon for you. Sometimes I know the only silence and solitude I get is when I turn off the TV and light downstairs. I walk upstairs to and through a dark stairway only to turn on a light and the TV again upstairs in my bedroom. What is that? No time for God. Silence and solitude is a gift that God gives us so that we can hear from him. Well, engaging in these practices are necessary. And doing these may look good to other people. But our text says if we're doing it for other people, we get no reward. We need to do it for the living God. Well, here's the three practices that he gives in our text. First is chapter or verse two. When you give to the needy, that's the one that we all see. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Truly I say to you, they receive your reward. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Giving is a spiritual practice. Giving is just not keeping the church open. Giving is an act of worship. It's a giving of ourselves. It's a giving of who we are. It's a giving of our time. Giving is an act of worship. But it's not to be done for show. 
I remember there was a guy named Richard in our church. This is a long time ago. And Richard used to sit in this section over there. And, and he loved the act of giving, of putting his check in the offering plate. He just got joy out of that. He worked hard, and that was a joy for him. I remember sitting on the, on the, on the row, it was pews at that time, and as the uh, communion plate came by, his wife hit him. Richard had fallen asleep. And as a communion plate, he reached out, brought his check, put it on top of the communion bread and passed it on. <laughs> I thought that was great. I thought it was funny. But uh, he, he loved to give. That was, that was his thing of giving. I remember being in a conference, a, a church conference, and, and um, one person in the conference had given a large donation for the project they were working on. And this person got up front and said, hey, I'd just like to thank David for his contribution. And David got got up and he said, dang it. He didn't say dang it. He said, you stole my reward. (laughs) It was supposed to be done in secret. Now I'm not going to get it in heaven. Don't do that to me. There's something about giving that's a practice that builds our souls. That's giving. And then the next one is, is prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at street corners that they may be seen by others. You know, for some people, praying in public is very easy. For some people, praying in public is terrifying and not easy. But he's saying for those who love to pray, don't do it for the benefit of others. Don't do it. Do it for what's in your heart. Henry Nouwen says, prayer challenges us to hide absolutely nothing from God and surrender to ourselves unconditionally to his mercy. Prayer is not like a genie rubbing a bottle or rubbing a bottle so the genie comes out. Prayer is surrendering to God, opening our lives to him. Prayer is surrender. Well, right here in this passage, we see the Lord's prayer. Very fascinating. It's a prayer we've all memorized, most of us. But as Jesus talks about this, he says, don't pray vain repetition. Don't pray for the benefit of others. When you pray, pray like this. He didn't necessarily pray this. Pray like this. He gives a pattern for prayer. And what a gift for us to hear from Jesus saying, here's how you should pray. What helps me as I go through the Lord's Prayer is five A's. A, it's an alliteration that helps me. The first one is addressing. Addressing. As we pray to God, who are we addressing? We are addressing the creator, the sustainer of all. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. When we pray, we remember who we're addressing. There's a story at one time that goes at Bill Moyers. He was a correspondent. Some of us would remember. He was also the press secretary for President Lyndon Johnson. And he was asked to say grace before a meal in the family quarters of the White House one night. And as Moyers began praying softly, the president interrupted him, as you would understand Johnson would do. He said, speak up, Bill, speak up. And Moyers, who was a former Baptist minister from East Texas, stopped in mid-sentence and without looking up, replied steadily, I wasn't addressing you, Mr. President. (laughs) That takes gall, doesn't it? Who are we addressing? We're addressing our Father who art in heaven. 
The second A is acknowledging. Acknowledging. He says, thy will be, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Acknowledging that it's not me, but it's about you, God. It's about what you want to do in, in our lives, in my life. Praying for God's plan to be carried out. For his will to be done. For me to conform to what he wants. There's a story of Ivan who was confined in a Soviet prison for many years. And one day he was praying with his eyes closed and a fellow prisoner noticed him and mocked him and said, prayers won't help you get out of here any faster, Ivan. To which Ivan answered, I do not pray to get out of prison, but to do the will of God. Many times we just pray about our circumstances. Actually, Jesus said, pray for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done in this setting. God, it's seeking God. It's seeking God's voice. Addressing, acknowledging. The third A that I use is asking. Give us this day, verse 11, our daily bread. Asking for daily sustenance. God, we're dependent on you. That is so hard for for me to know that I'm dependent on God for my next meal because our pantry is full. When I visit my brothers and sisters in Africa and see that they have nothing and when they pray for their next meal, they're praying for the rain to fall so their plants grow. There's a dependence on God and Jesus wants us to have that, to realize that we are dependent on him. I think at the beginning of this year, we thought life was pretty good. We were pretty strong. We wouldn't say that we didn't need God, but we probably didn't live like we needed God. Since things have unfolded this year, we realize we need God. We are dependent. We can't even keep a little virus out of us. We need God. Asking. Asking is also intercessory prayer. A spiritual practice of taking requests And the concerns of our hearts to the ear of God with boldness and confidence. It's responding to the invitation of God to be transparent in who we are. God, this is what I need. Give me my daily bread and the needs that I have. Dallas Willard writes, asking is indeed the great law of the spiritual world. Through which things are accomplished in cooperation with God. And yet in harmony with the freedom and worth of every individual. Prayer is a a mystery. I want you to pray. But only God will answer. So addressing, acknowledging, asking, and then admitting. Verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Admitting our sin. The practice of confession. It's something that brings healing. Talks about James, talks about confessing to one another. There's something about sharing with another person. Hey, this is what I'm struggling with. This is my sin. And for them to hear it and say, man, I'm praying for you. Or I know God forgives you. Confession is life-giving. It's healing. Confession is a practice God has given us to draw us closer to himself. The Prussian king, Frederick the Great, was once touring a Berlin prison. And the prisoners fell on their knees before him, proclaiming their innocence. 
except for one man who remained silent. Frederick called to him and said, why are you here? Armed robbery, your majesty, was the reply. Are you guilty? Yes, indeed, your majesty, I deserve my punishment. Frederick then summoned the jailer and ordered him, release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have him kept in this prison where he will corrupt all these fine, innocent people who occupy it. (laughs) Ah, We're all broken. That's a sermon on the mount. We're broken people. We need to admit that. We may look good on a Sunday morning. We may look good practicing our righteousness. But he says to confess, to confess, to address, to acknowledge, to ask, admitting. And then he talks about, after that, he goes on in verse 13 in asking. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Asking God on our behalf to deliver us from evil. Temptation surrounds us. The scripture says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. No wonder things are in a mess. God is sovereign, but Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Temptation surrounds us. Temptation seduces us. We are to ask God to deliver us. F.B. Meyer, a great preacher, said, I believe, he said, once said that when we see a brother in sin, there are two things we do not know. First, we do not know how hard or he or she tried not to sin. And second, we do not know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. We also do not know what we would have done in the same circumstance. When we're asking God to deliver us from evil, we look at other people and go, wow, they're stupid. Look what they did. No, we don't know what they've been through. Deliver us from evil. And then in verse 14, he talks about the importance of forgiveness. If you forgive others their trespasses, this is a scary passage. Your heavenly father will forgive you. That's the good part. The scary part is 15. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. The importance of forgiveness. The spiritual practice of forgiving other people. You probably wouldn't take long to create a list of people that you are upset with. That people that you have, that have harmed you. People that have done you wrong. Whether from a small child or an older age in business. We live in an evil world. God says, forgive them. My kingdom is in the heart of men. And when we do what is right, we give glory to God and his kingdom reigns. It's a gift to listen to Jesus praying. And then this third illustration is fasting. Verse 16 and 17, when you fast, do not look gloomy <laughs> like the hypocrites. Don't disfigure their faces and their fasting may be seen by others. They receive their reward. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who sees in secret. Interesting, fasting is probably not one of the big practices that you or I continue. It's been a part of church history. It's part of the scriptures. Fasting has always been an integral part of God's family. 
It isn't just the practice of eating fast food. Some of you may have thought that. That's not fasting. Fasting is letting go of an appetite to make space for God and to hear from him. It's not a way to manipulate God or to blackmail God or to get his attention or to force his hand or to guarantee something or to lose weight. Fasting opens our heart so that God can speak to us. We offer him our time, our attentiveness outside our normal worship and prayer. So those are the three examples he gives of giving, praying, and fasting. Where so many of us, we need to beware. The sandbar is there. The currents are there. We could lose our reward in heaven. And what is the reward? The reward looks different. Again, this is the kingdom of God. Forget what you've heard. We think, wow, the reward would be money. (laughs) That's what we all want. That's what we work for. That's what some people play the lottery for. It's for money. They want a reward. The kingdom is not like that. The currency of the kingdom is the glory of God. When we do what is right, God receives glory. We give glory to God. That is the currency of heaven. That is the joy of heaven. That is the wealth of heaven. Having that glory that we can give to God. Don't spend it here. Don't look for it here. It's in heaven. It looks so different. After a preacher died, he went to heaven. Obviously, this is not a true story. He noticed that a New York cab driver had been given a higher place than he had in heaven. I don't understand, he complained to St. Peter. I devoted my entire life to the congregation. Our policy is to reward results, explained St. Peter. Now, what happened, Reverend, whenever you gave a sermon? The minister admitted that some in the congregation fell asleep. Exactly, said St. Peter. When the people rode in this man's taxi, they not only stayed awake, they prayed. (laughs) You saw that one coming. Ah. The reward in heaven is different than what we would have here. God calls us, calls us to live differently in his kingdom. Here's three sentences we'll close with. Number one, embrace the practices he has given us to fully enjoy the kingdom. Embrace the practices he has given us to fully enjoy the kingdom. The practices are an invitation to open our heart to God to do it right. Secondly, apply the practices of righteousness for an audience of one. Do what you do for the glory of God, not to be seen by others. Number three, look in the mirror. Ask the question that Sarah did. If God is bigger than us, and lives in us, wouldn't he show through? Look in the mirror. See, is God shining through you in your attitudes, in your actions, in how you practice righteousness in what you do? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that's so clear. You say your yoke is not easy, but for us, this looks kind of difficult. 
I'm a person that wants attention, that loves attention, that loves encouragement. But yet if I do it for my glory, you do not receive it. Help us, Father. Help us to worship you for your glory. Help us to enjoy the kingdom that you have given us because you are worthy of it all. You, the creator, are worthy, worthy of it all. We give you our lives, our time, our money, our talents, our worship. Worthy are you, Lord. Amen.